And we are live. Welcome everyone to Connected Learning TV. This is the fourth and final webinar in our July series titled Building Trust in Connected Learning Environments. And I'm Martha Faberta, Special Projects Coordinator for Teaching and Learning Technologies at the University of Mary Washington, and I'll be your host for today. Throughout this month on Connected Learning TV, we've been exploring some of the issues and recommendations from the recent Aspen Task Force on Learning and the Internet Report, Learner at the Center of a Networked World. Today, we'll be chatting specifically about higher education as a trusted environment for learning. But before we dive into our chat, let's go over a couple of quick details. To those watching live right now, we welcome your comments and questions either via the Twitter hashtags DMLTrust or Connected Learning or via the Google Plus event page. We'll do our best to address your questions here in the Google Hangout and we're also chatting throughout the month in the Connected Learning Google Plus community and using the same DMLTrust hashtag on Google Plus. I'd like to give our guests a chance to briefly introduce themselves and I'm going to start with the person who in the Google Hangout is on the farthest left from me. So Anne, why don't you go ahead and start? Hi, I'm Ann Balsamo, and I serve right now as the Dean of the School of Media Studies at the New School for Public Engagement in New York. I'm a co-founder of a, an activated network that we call FemTechNet that ran a uh, networked connected learning course um, last year called a Distributed Open Collaborative Course. We're running that again this year. And I'm also really proud to say I'm one of the original members of the Haystack Steering Committee, having been part of the um, original group that met in 2003 to come up with the name Haystack. Thanks. Thank you, Anne. And next, Audrey, could you introduce yourself? Hi there, I'm Audrey Waters. I'm a writer about education and technology. I freelance in multiple places, um, but most of the time at my site, Hack Education. And I'm working on a book right now called Teaching Machines, which is the history, the long sort of history of our drive to automate education. Thank you, Audrey. Howard, would you mind introducing yourself? Oh, I think you're muted. I'm doing the Japanese monster movie thing. <laughs> Hi, I'm Howard Rheingold. I am currently a lecturer, which I think we all know is a fancy name for an adjunct at Stanford University. I also was a lecturer for four years at University of California at Berkeley. I teach blended courses. They're about social media, so we use social media. Um, and I also teach online uh, courses at Rheingold U. Thank you. And next up, Jade, would you introduce yourself? Hi, I am Jade Davis. I am the program coordinator at Haystack. Um, we've partnered with Connected Learning to put on this webinar series as um, part of the ongoing conversation around trusts. Um, the MacArthur Trust um, Foundation is having a digital media and learning competition, the fifth one. It's on um, trust challenges in connected learning environments. So you can find out more at dmlcompetition.net. Thank you, Jade. And finally, Jonathan. Hello, um, I'm Jonathan Worth. I'm a photographer. I'm also a teacher at Coventry University, and uh, I also I also help institutions and and now brands uh, sort of open out their products and think of them as more connected brands, as it were. Thank you, everyone, for those introductions. 
So I want to go ahead and get started, and, and I'd like to start by unpacking some of our perspectives on what trust looks like in higher education generally. And in preparing for today, it really struck me how many facets there were to that conversation. So to get us going, um, I'm going to ask each of you to choose an aspect of trust in higher ed that you find particularly important or challenging or compelling. Um, but first, I'm going to exercise my host privileges for a moment to frame this a little bit before we get started. Um, I think it's worth noting that the conversation today is focused on higher ed, um, as opposed to some of the previous webinars this month, which have been focused on working more with youth populations and younger students. So one thing I'm interested in is how the conversation changes, or does it, when we move along the trajectory from working with youth to working with the various, typically adult constituencies that make up our institutions. And in addition, I think when we try to frame trust within higher ed, it might be interesting to explore how it plays out um, in the various processes and aspects of our institutions. So we have perhaps the most obvious trust in the classroom. So between and among students and instructors, there's also trust in our systems themselves and the values that they embody, from matriculation to graduation. Um, and then there's trust in the so-called outcomes of higher education, the diplomas, the degrees, the certifications, and the impact that those have on our lives. And finally, uh, one that maybe gets overlooked sometimes, but I think has, um, has a lot of resonance with some stories that have been in the media lately, which is trust in sort of the research processes and the ethics and values embodied in those processes that are so important to many of our institutions that have a, have a big research branch to our, to our mission. So that's a lot. So to re recap, I'm going to ask each of you to choose one aspect, um, just to get us started, of trust in higher education that you think is really important or challenging or compelling, and talk about your particular perspective, um, perspective on that or experiences with that issue. And we'll go in the same order for this question, so let's start with Anne. I hate going first on these. <laughs> these are all very good thoughts and very good questions. Um, let's see. I am interested in. I'm interested in all those aspects of the the notion of trustworthiness. I think that um, you know, as I'm just going to say, as a feminist teacher um, who's often taught courses to less than receptive audiences when I teach courses in feminism, technology, and science, and so on. Um, one of the issues that I've had to address is the, you know, the issue of how to create a, 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 a trustworthy space in a classroom where people are going to be discussing things that very few of us, if any of us, are entirely um, comfortable with. And so there's this notion of kind of trustworthiness that goes along with um, the classroom as a space of learning about and learning with other people with whom you don't agree. And that would might be, you know, just students to students, having um, meeting up with people who don't share their values and being in a classroom where you have to, um, you know, create the conditions whereby people are respectful and so on. Also, you know, I've had plenty of experiences where students are in a classroom and it's it's me they don't agree with, and we have the you know the, the kind of situation where I have to earn their trust, and that trust doesn't get earned by me standing up and lecturing and demonstrating great erudition. 
the sage on the stage model, that trust um, is absolutely essential. That kind of that that forms in a way that I demonstrate. I know what I'm talking about, but I also demonstrate a kind of a, a, a kind of very steadfast open-mindedness to ideas that are in absolute contradiction to what I am kind of teaching or what the material kind of holds as kind of the strongest values. So trustworthiness for me is is very nuanced in the sense of um, building trust among people in a in a space where they are for some period of time going to agree to kind of walk a path together. And the path that they're walking is what we call the kind of the learning adventure and the trustworthiness is that um, I know we may not agree and we may not share all the same values but for the purpose of this adventure I'm going to um, I'm going to act in a trustworthy way and I'm going to model trustworthiness and I'm going to expect trust trustworthiness from everyone who's kind of on this kind of on this journey so that's kind of my two cents of dropping into this kind of broad question about what's the what's the nature of trust and trustworthiness. Thank you, Anne. Audrey, how about you? Um, I liked what Anne said about this focus on um, trust as being about relationships between people and this element of reciprocity, which I think is is really important. But I also want to come back to what you said at the beginning, Martha, that. When we talk about trust in in education, that isn't just about the sort of relationships between individuals, the between the teacher perhaps and the student, or between the students creating their own learning community together. And I think it's important to think about how um, there are sort of do we trust in the system? Do we trust in the institutions? Um, do we trust in the technology? Um, and perhaps do we trust in the companies that are providing the technology for us? And I think that when we examine those, we start to note that those are often sites where there is less reciprocity, right? Where if this isn't about being able to sort of negotiate a relationship where, where, where we can sort of participate equally. And I think that that sort of helps demonstrate the way in which power works in different situations in a student's, um, in all of our lives, um, but in students, in students and teachers' lives as well. So I think it's important to think about sort of how, how does power play out when we're talking about trust. I mean, it's clear the power that a, that a teacher has is very different than the power that a students have. But I think we're sort of thinking through the way in which, particularly as we start talking about new digital technologies, how I think many of these ways in which we've often thought about the power of the classroom being constructed is being changed. Power isn't going away by any means. We haven't had the sort of magical democratization thanks to technology. But I think that we're seeing power concentrated in new nodes and that represents a lot of challenges for us if we aren't really willing to address some of the politics that um, might underlie trust. Thank you. I have to say this is going to be hard because I want to keep moving forward but I have all kinds of follow-up questions already. But we're going to go on. So Howard, how about you? Can you talk about an aspect of trust in higher ed that you find particularly resonant? Well, I want to say for this, you know, at the beginning, maybe this is not um, productive um, because I don't know um, <clears throat> exactly what to do about it, but um, institutions of higher education have um, a lack of trust built into the, to the system. And, 
at elite institutions, um, you've got students who've been training their whole lives to compete with each other, and they're still very concerned about their their grades. Um, and at somewhat less uh, elite institutions, students are concerned about their grades uh, because of their financial aid. And so grades are a huge problem. Um, making a class pass fail is, you know, one kind of simple workaround for that. But at most institutions, um, you can't give a larger number of credits if a, a, a course is pass fail. But eliminating grades. Uh, with that pass-fail system, that's I think the single uh, strongest thing you can do about the institutionalized uh, mistrust, and it's not just mistrust; it's the the tradition of working alone, the the um, the student uh, as the uh, individual uh, banker of knowledge that they receive, rather than um, a cooperative learner in a community. My objective with my blended courses is to form a learning community uh, as quickly as possible since we have a quarter that's not really a lot of time, 10 weeks, and I've learned some things about what can get people to trust each other enough to, to do that. In retrospect, they are all very obvious, um, but I didn't really get it at the beginning. For one thing, uh, you see students come into a class and some of them may know each other but for, for the most part in most institutions most of the the time you can't assume that the, the students um, have relationships with each other or even know each other so a few things that I do about that is the very first thing to get them talking with each other rather than me talking at them and I use things like think pair share in which I get them to ask questions and, and make decisions with each other very quickly. And a lot of small group conversations. Also at the end of the first class meeting, I assign them to form groups of two or three or four and to get together uh, and have coffee or lunch and talk about a question uh, relevant to the class because to a certain degree, trust is transitive. If um, a trusts B and C knows A, then C is willing to give B a little bit of trust. So getting students to know each other is the first step to getting them to trust each other. And then I, I like to, to do low stakes collaborations. Low stakes because collaborations are a real pain when they're associated with grades because there's always the person who does more work and the person who does less work, and you need to get into a kind of elaborate system of, of self-assessment there. But if it's something that's not, uh, doesn't have a lot to do with the grade, um, and you can get uh, like a, sh a, sh a couple of hours, a short-term uh, collaboration, then I think that that helps as well. So this is all a matter of trust building. I, I think it's a different issue. So how do you really get a high trust environment? But I think that you can sort of get it off the ground by moving away from an inherently um, untrusted environment. Thank you. Um, Jade, how about you? Can, can you share with us uh, your perspective on sort of one of the most important aspects of trust in higher ed that you find 
fears um, discussion. Yeah, I think it sort of ties together the things that have been said. I'm really interested in the politics of information throw and how that ethically plays out, especially as we start bringing technology into how people are learning. Um, I'm thinking specifically of students moving from the role of being a student or a learner um, in learning environments to being these digital end users and what that means for things like student data, the information that they have access to, what happens with their intellectual property. Um, for me, as somebody who teaches, I'm also um, a lecturer at UNC Chapel Hill and somebody who is a graduate student. Um, the questions around IP that are beginning to form because we have all these digital tools um, are something that I think is unique to higher ed as compared to the K-12 conversation that we've been having before and I think for me that's the place where we need to interrogate the hardest is what are we going to do about all of this data that's being created, all this information and ownership of it. So that's where I come into the conversation. Thanks Jade. And finally, Jonathan, what, what issue for you um, really seems the most compelling in terms of talking about trust in higher ed? Yes, well, I'm going to pick up on something that Audrey said because uh, um, what, I'm going to, an example of something where I completely broke uh, my students' trust and, um, and let that be a warning to us all. So um, I, about a year or so ago, I was at a DML conference um, talking about a project that um, I'm known for, this photography and narrative class, Phonar and I was talking about all the tens of thousands of people that had, had attended the class, the sort of meta class, outside of the classroom and how fabulous it was and how I'd broken down these barriers and, and as an advocate of, um, of not ch asking the students to change their existing patterns of behaviors I was singing the praises of um, going where the fish already swim, so teaching in um, Instagram or teaching in Flickr or SoundCloud or all these existing platforms that we didn't have to rebuild because this is this is a, a, a great way of, um, of, of sort of saving valuable resources within our institutions to, to just use these ones that are already out there. And towards the end of my presentation, feeling very, sort of very uh, delighted that I managed to pull it off without um, breaking into tears or um, you know, uh, forgetting what I was meant to, to be saying, Nishant, uh, Nishant Shah put his hand up and said, um, he said, you know, we've heard a lot about rights, about students' rights, about people's rights. He said, well, if I were a 16-year-old student about to enter your class or a 17-, 18-year-old student having done it, what about my right to be deleted? And I, I didn't have an answer for him. And I realized at that moment that I'd led my students down this path. I'd explicitly told them to make the work in all these different environments without knowing how, I, how we could actually um, claim back that data. Which is why I think, you know, I think initiatives like Jim Groom's um, Domain of One's Own is sort of really important. I'm looking to learn a great deal from that. But that moment made me realize that, in fact, it was the right thing to go and learn in these spaces and to teach in these spaces. But I had to be the learner as well to work out how to safely negotiate these spaces so I could take my students by the hand and so I could earn back that trust, which I had uh, at that point really um, had no right to have. And it also served me well when I worked with um, another institution to turn their platform into an, a learning platform which is the World Press Photo and thank goodness I had that knowledge before I went into that because that just teaches in North African countries and it's running right now and some of the th some of the things that kick back on people who the, some of the cultural um, consequences of, um, of being um, a known and identifiable learner in those situations are are significantly more weighty than some of the ones that my students would, would be going through. And so, um, yeah, that, that, that for me is the thing that I, I think about most right now.
Thanks, Jonathan. Sorry about that. I have a lot of windows open. It took me a while to find the unmute button. Um, so let's, um, let's take a minute to talk about trust. Um, as I said, I have a lot of follow-up questions based on, on your responses just now, but I do have, have some questions that we had um, we've kind of talked about before this session that I want to follow through on. And, and one of those is about the notion of trust within connected learning environments um, and, and, what, and what particular challenges those kinds of learning environments um, present us and, and what sort of opportunities they present us when it comes to establishing trust. Um, and and I, I don't necessarily want to go in, in order um, I want people to be able to speak who, who feel they have something to say about this. Um, so, but it, it, that's a little tricky to do in this environment. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with you, Anne, but at any way along the way, if somebody wants to turn the floor over, um, that's perfectly fine. We have other questions that will resonate differently with different people. So Anne, what about you? When, it, when you're talking about these kinds of connected learning environments, what are the particular challenges that trust uh, or, or creating trust present and 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 I would say that I one of the follow-ups I had for you from your previous comment was um, in, in your talking speaking so eloquently about working with students on topics that may be uncomfortable where there may be some significant disagreement just not just among each other but with the instructor how do these kind of learning environments um, challenge even further how you how you address those situations well I I think I just want to um kind of amplify Jonathan and Audrey's points and I think Jonathan's point is just really beautifully kind of beautifully made which is that um, you know when you invite and you know it's 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 much much the way games in, engage people when you invite people into you know the magic circle of come with me through a learning a, a learning adventure um, you know you're you are implicitly saying I'm a I'm a trustworthy guide for for you on this adventure and I think Jonathan's point was you know was just really beautifully made which is that oftentimes in in connected learning certainly in the work that we did with um, the distributed open collaborative course we were barely one step ahead of the students in understanding what the affordances and the constraints of the um, of the networked environment and the network tools were that we were using so you know it's not that you know that I had a lot of experience teaching in an online you know online situation we were building a new platform for our doc and so on so these questions that such as um, Jonathan raises about um, I never even thought about how you know how to enable students to um, edit their own contributions to be able to continue to be the owner of their own contributions such that they could take them take things offline as well as respond to my prompts that they put things online you know so I, th I think connected courses really put a, a kind of an additional responsibility on those of us who are positioned as instructors or facilitators um, you know to, to know a whole lot more about what's under the hood right how easy is it once something is posted to unpost or to delete or you know or the management of privacy or so on and I, I know we talked a little bit about um, just before we we got started and I hope we get into what are all the kind of privacy policies that 
um, that we should be aware of, that we need to be aware of, that are in place, that um, we need to communicate to our students, that we need to monitor. How do we monitor these policies? How do we, in, you know, make these policies, enact these policies? How do we keep them, uh, you know, sustain them over time? So, in, in some respects, the, the question for me in trustworthiness and connected um, learning is I have to be far more um, vigilant about understanding constraints, affordances, and, you know, this is another mantra for me, unintended consequences of the technologies that I'm choosing to use. How can things go wrong? How can things get, you know, explode? And my, my imagination needs to go not just to the utopic, uh, you know, optimistic, Oh, everybody's going to be able to, you know, to learn across all these platforms. But how are how could these things be used against either against my own values, my own ethics? Um, how can they be used against the students? Because I do have a responsibility, not in a pa a kind of patronizing way, but if they're going to put their trust in me again to be a facilitator of a learning adventure, I do have some responsibility to know what that what the risks. And the opportunities of this of the adventure are on offer. That's I have to I have to go plug my machine in too, so I'm going to disappear for a minute. But go ahead. And and something Anne just said actually um, made me think of something else, which is that it's it seems to me that there's a certain amount of almost risk analysis that you end up having to do um, as an instructor in in courses like this, where you have to weigh the opportunities against the risks and figure out you know what are what what are you willing to take on, um, and how can you maybe mitigate those risks those risks by developing trust and by um, and by developing those relationships with your students in such a way that um, the outcomes aren't as dire as as you might imagine when you're you know you're you're up late at night imagining the worst case scenario. So I'd be interested in hearing too from those of you who are teaching in spaces like this how you conduct that risk analysis and how it's impacted your design and development of courses um, as a result or has it. Um, and Howard, actually, you, you had spoken up in the chat that you had something specifically to say on this topic about the use of video as a way um, to address trust issues in, in online courses. Do you want to bring that up now? Sure. Uh, th this works best, of course, when, when you've got a smaller number of, uh, of people. But um, humans have evolved a very finely honed sense of uh, faces and voices in regard to trust. And when you've got a, a group who don't meet face-to-face -face and there aren't a lot of pre-existing relationships <coughs> enabling people to see each other and hear each other um, even if the, the content of the conversation is not all that important just being able to, to see and hear and get a, a sense of the person I think one thing that video does add very strongly after many years of dealing with people in a text-only environment is that it gives you a sense of the person in, in, in ways that um, other media that, that lack that access to the face and the voice um, uh, don't give you. So if you've got a lot of people you can use something like Big Blue Button or collaborate um, or you could uh, enable and encourage smaller groups to use uh, Hangout, uh, and you know, presumably, in not too long, um, we will have free or very inexpensive ways of larger numbers of people accessing audio and video. But just uh, giving people um, 
one minute to answer a question. You can go through 60 people in an hour. Actually, you know, it takes it always takes longer than than that. But you can just get a, a sense of people very very quickly um, by hearing them and seeing them. That's a great great point. Thanks for sharing that, Howard. It's it's interesting how the media has has presented in the same way that we're talking about you know those risks that we have to um, we have to kind of plan for and think through. It sometimes get lo gets lost that the media embeds in itself some opportunities here that we didn't have before too, and that it's important to acknowledge and recognize those as well. Jade, you said that you had something to share with us on this notion of kind of, of I love this risk literacy. Yes, um, I'm calling it risk literacy. Um, I'm thinking about it just in terms of um, Jonathan's experience and the things that Audrey said in response to the first question. Um, I have sort of a blended classroom, um, and as much as my students do have to blog, sometimes they will do um, projects that involve social media or they'll make video clips that they post to YouTube. And one of the things that I have them do is sign an agreement in my classroom that is basically handing over some of their intellectual rights to me, the professor, to contact them on these systems, to follow these, them on these systems. Um, but one of the other things that they're agreeing to is to abide by the terms of service of these different systems that they're logging on to. Um, I expect them to know what you're legally agreeing to um, because it is outside of FERPA and it's outside of the classroom and it's a very sticky place. Um, and I call that risk literacy um, and it's something that we often don't talk about or don't think about until something goes horribly wrong. Um, so I'm trying to forefront that as a place where we have to understand the different type of trust that's in play when we're working in collective learning, um, connective learning environments. Um, and what I want to say about risk overall is that when we start thinking about trust and how that's formed, it's inherently about risk. Um, even walking into a classroom space, if I'm teaching an introductory level class, my students are walking into the space not knowing me, not knowing who I am, not knowing much about me except for the things that they can find online. But they trust that because I'm associated with an institution, because they've walked into a classroom and I'm standing at the front of the class, um, that I'm somebody who is trustworthy to teach them. Um, which is fun to play with, um, especially as we move on to digital spaces. One of the things that I do is I never introduce myself on the first day of class. Um, I just stand in the front of the classroom and talk like I'm supposed to be talking there. And inevitably, they assume that I'm the teacher, even though I might not be. Um, there was a video that went viral two semesters ago of a, a guy who did this in a science class. He came into the class, and he taught for 30 minutes. Um, and then the actual professor came, and he ran out. Um, and this is with people being in physical spaces, being able to see faces and voices like Howard just mentioned. Um, when you start moving into like these connected learning spaces, how do we create that trust when people are behind screens and behind closed doors at times? So, yes, risk literacy is extremely important to me for trust and learning in higher ed. Great. And uh, Audrey, I think you had a follow-up to that. Yeah, I thought that a point that um, Howard made at the beginning was really interesting about are education institutions trustworthy and what sort of, what in what ways are they not? And I think it's important to sort of ask who trusts you know, who trusts education? Do we trust education and why? And I also want us to think about sort of do we trust technology? Who trusts technology and why? I, I think that the language, it's really interesting to sort of think about the language that we use to talk about people in these different settings as well. I think that students are sort of oftentimes seen in education as sort of the objects of the system, right? Education is something that the system does to students. And I think that, of course, I think, you know, the, the educators here 
sort of are very much sort of believing in this idea of student student agency tend to sort of want to foster a more student-centered subject, you know, sort of give students more subjectivity. But I think that the system sees students as the object. Sort of what does that mean when we talk about technology? When we tend to talk about students, and this is something that Jade's work is really interesting, I think, when we talk about them as users. So how does that change? How does that change the way in which they're sort of um, Sorry, I'm, I forgot to introduce that I'm like a recovering addict, so I'm going to use a big theory word. How does that change the way in which they're sort of interpolated by, um, interpolated by these by these tools? And what sorts of ways are we working to make sure that we're still honoring and sort of providing them a way to have agency? And in what ways are we actually sort of putting them into sort of new new sorts of templates, new sorts of um, um, new sorts of ways that are that are actually sort of limiting their ability to sort of speak and develop freely and creatively. So that makes me think about a, a question that I had sort of percolating as I was preparing for today that that, that came to me, and it, it kind of gets at this notion of our perceptions of the dif the different roles of everybody in this game that we play called higher education. Like what what role does an instructor take, and what role does a student take, an administrator. Um, and one of the things that's that's interested me is that you know for the past uh, probably two or three decades maybe maybe more um, increasingly higher education has has been recasting itself for, in some ways out of necessity um, to operate in more um, in more business like ways and thinking of themselves more um, in terms of of the language and the conduct of businesses um, and and part of that has to do with funding. Um, issues and part of that has to do with perceptual issues and part of that has to do with the media um, but I'm wondering about how that has infiltrated and in, impacted the these kinds of trust relationships with we, we have with each other so so when we start to think about higher education as a more transactional space um, formulated in a way like a business how does that, that challenge our ability to develop healthy trusting relationships in this context um, and I don't know who to pick on for this one. Does anybody have a particular? Yeah. Okay, Anne. Because oh. <laughs> because I would like to um, I'd like to actually kind of um, uh, pass the baton to Jonathan on this because I think one of the um, one of the critical kind of elements that we have seen happen in that same kind of trajectory was that. Instead of trusting the value of education as a public good that was good for people and citizens and residents and communities and so on, um, we shifted to trust is now based on brand. And brand becomes a, um, a kind of a, a, a substitute mechanism for. Um, for kind of the communication of trustworthiness. So this is right on Jonathan, so I'd like to just kind of make that and pass the baton to him. It's because I used the word brand at the beginning, isn't it? I'm going to get the blame for this now. No, so I, uh, so, uh, you know, so with the, with, when we did any, when we made any alterations to, uh, to the, Matt, and Matt Johnson and I, when we made any alterations to the photography and narrative class, we were the first question we would ask each other is, is this going to constitute a barrier to entry for someone? Is this new platform not going to be available here? Does it, does it come with a cost? Is there a financial barrier to entry, a geographical barrier to entry? We'd think about that in every case. And if it was, then we wouldn't make the change. 
But one of the things, whilst we were being clever with the students, we didn't think about was um, the cultural barrier to entry for our management, for our bosses. Because every time they heard me talking about these open classes, they heard free, and they heard, um, they heard no profit, and they heard a bad business model. But when I changed the language to start talking about connected, they heard a network, and they heard a real value. They heard um, in improved, enhanced package for the students. And then um, when I started to talk about thinking about what the product was of a teacher, and I challenged them, I said, I don't think the product is the information. I think the product is, is uh, the learning experience. Because if the product is just the information, then that means, you know, we know more than a textbook. I don't see the future of education in being textbooks. Because, you know, if, you're gonna, if, you, if that's what you're going to bank on, then you're going head to head with the biggest um, textbook in the world, which is the internet. And that's never going to fly. So I said that the product is the live mental teaching and learning experience. And by making, and by making it, open, it open, I turn that product, the best thing we had, the most exciting thing we had, I turn it into an outward-facing outward-facing asset. I turn it in fact into a touch point. And all this language, 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 Jonathan, your 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 sound is a little weird. Can can you uh, uh, unplug and plug back in? Yeah, there's a little bit of feedback. Sometimes, like, clapping will help. I don't know. Like, a loud okay, noise okay. will sometimes break that. Yeah, I don't get much of a noise. That was a nice <laughs> tone, tone. I sound weird. Sound weird. Okay. okay, thank you. Thank you. Is, is that any better? Any better? Am I okay now? It's still... There's well, still something well, wrong, yeah. I kind of kind of come to the end of the end, and it was, and it was that... that um, um, by, by, by changing the language, language, I was able to get, get the course to be accepted by the management. I'll stop now in case I'm not audible. Sorry, now I'm now I'm having technical issues. I was saying even with the technical issues, you were very eloquent. Anybody else want to speak to this particular issue of of, um, of sort of the way in which our our present presentation of ourselves of our of our institutions as as a brand as something that needs to be protected in that way undermines or challenges our ability um, to to address trust? Because if not, I, the other follow up that I had specifically um, leading from what Jonathan was saying, was about this trust in the product of what we create in higher education. Because I think that is that is another facet of this that gets at kind of the system level of higher education and I think is really important. Like what is the thing that we, what is the public good that we generate and how do we not only, um, how do we not only build trust in it among our students, among, among the people who work at our institutions, but also among the, the communities that we serve um, and the spaces there. Um, so any this oh oh wait Jade had something on brand specifically I'm sorry no 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 it's okay it's actually related to the product and the idea okay. of information <laughs> as content um, one of the things that I've looked at is MOOCs um, especially at the time when they were really picking up steam with the big giant MOOC companies and how they borrowed the brands of schools um, like Harvard University like Yale like MIT. Um, to validate their content, um, the information they were providing as being something that was worth taking the time to use for free. Um, so I think branding is extremely important. Um, most of us here have these things called lower thirds that have our name because in higher ed, as an individual, as a professor, you're a brand. Um, when a student signs on to go to a school, they're buying into that information product. Um, and I don't think that's changing into connected learning environments. What we haven't done is figured out um, exactly how to translate them and how to translate the um, inherent trust that we have to the point that a student can just 
walk into a space and know that they're here to take advantage of the information and knowledge they can create um, to connect and learning environments. So that's my two cents on brands and products. And we have, uh, we have a question actually from our live studio audience um, from Google+. Um, how do you, uh, and particularly for those of you who, who teach in these spaces, how do you address colleagues worried about FERPA implications um, or, you know, if you're in another country, pick your particular legislation? Uh, the FERPA implications of having students work online under their own names. Um, how do you address that from a policy perspective, from a practice perspective, and your conversations with students? Uh, um, anybody? Uh, go ahead, Jade. Really quickly, um, one of the things that happens when they sign their agreement to me to work on social media, um, they have the option of doing it either under their real name or pseudonymously. Um, but they also have to do um, readings related to what that means to either do this under your real name, so we read Rise of the Real Name Web, um, or do it pseudonymously and what that means for the platform. So we also have a reading that we do called the Politics of Platforms that helps them understand what it means to be a user in these spaces um, and how that, translate into the how that translates into the classroom space. Thank you. And Anne, you said you had a follow-up. I don't know if it was on the brand question or, or this particular... Okay, you're good. <laughs> how... Howard, how about you? When you're working in these in these classes, these kind of open network classes, how do you address these questions of of um, having students work out in the open under their own name? Do you have a policy approach to this? Do you have a particular uh, conversation that you have with students about this? Well, um, I'm a, a a convert to uh, Reverend Groom's uh, working on the open web uh, philosophy. Because that's the, that's the world that they are going to graduate into. Whether they like it or not, they're going to have a digital profile. They should take control of it. That's my opinion. I am not, because of, of FERPA and because of ethics, I'm not going to force that opinion on them. I'm going to try to persuade them that it makes sense for them to take control of what happens when, when you Google their name by putting out some thoughtful material with their name, but if they have an objection to it, they can use a pseudonym. Um, I would rather have them understand what it's like to, to, um, to learn in public at least to the degree that the other students are reacting to them rather than just performing for the professor, and whether it's a pseudonym or not, if they can get any kind of reaction to what they're doing online, people commenting or linking to them, that's very encouraging to them. It's very different from, you know, getting a gold star, getting a grade. It has to do with the, the way digital reputation works. So I, I don't see any workaround to it, nor should, ethically do I think there should be. They should give, be given the option of being um, pseudonymous. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, Audrey, you had a follow-up on the FERPA? Um, I, think, yeah. I think the FERPA is a great, um, a great reminder of how our laws really struggle to keep pace with the changing technology, right? FERPA was passed in 1974, which means the law is just about the same age as Sergey Brin and Larry Page, right, the founders of Google. So um, really, FERPA was sort of designed to protect the educational record. Um, but what does the educational record look like today with all of this data that students are creating? It's not simply a matter of the content 
sort of their, their attendance or their grades in the class or even the content that they create in a class. Um, but sort of all Did Audrey drop? Everything, everybody dropped. <laughs> Are we back? I'm back. By, by a show of hands, is everybody back? Okay. <laughs> I think the Google servers couldn't handle it, so. Audrey, do you want? <laughs> I think I said some. Did I say something bad about? I didn't even say anything bad about. I don't think Larry you did. Or Sarah Gay and Brynn. <laughs> I still got zapped. <laughs> no, I think what the point I wanted to make is that the the we're really changing what um, what data what the students' data looks like, and I'm not sure we've even begun to address um, how we're going to protect student privacy in this new world. And I'm not, I don't think that actually FERPA is the right metric to be going. I think we have to think of something other than FERPA to sort of do right by students here. So, um, so I'm going to take this in kind of a, a little bit of a, another direction now following up on that and this, this question, a, kind of an, an ethics question of, um, oh look we've all lost our lower thirds, I just realized that. Um, we all know who we are. Um, you know, in light of some of the news that's been breaking lately, you know, we have the Facebook, the, the massive Facebook experiment, um, which I think um, caught some people by surprise, maybe not everyone. Um, there was the, the story that broke um, a few weeks ago about this possible experiment that was happening in a Coursera MOOC. It's a little bit, a little bit still, un, it's a little bit unclear still what exactly was happening um, in that, in that uh, incident. But I'm wondering about um, this issue of trust in light of, of news like that um, and the, the kind of power that we wield in our ability to, uh, to harness student data, to, um, to mine that data, to understand um, the behaviors of our students, especially when we get to massive scale, um, like with so many MOOCs, um, and, and whether or not we really are staying on top of, of our understanding of, of what that potential is. Um, and, and what the challenges are there. Do, does anybody have anything specifically about um, a perspective on, on how we go about moving forward, continuing to, mo to move forward, continuing to adapt and address new, new technologies and, and, and incorporate those into, into our own teaching while being mindful of those potential harms, those potential challenges um, in, in light of those, those kinds of stories? Anyone? Anyone at all? <laughs> I'll do. I'll say something. Okay. I'll, I'll just blather on again. I won't say anything mean about any Google-related products in doing so. Um, I think that we actually see here the tension between what um, what Anne said at the beginning about building relationships, creating a safe place, and then what you said a few moments ago about the business logic and ideology turning education into transaction, right? So one of those is based on reciprocity. One of those is clearly interested in extraction, extracting, um, extracting value perhaps from, from student data. So I think that we're, we see a, a, a real tension between um, ways in which we want to be able to build relationships with people 
and ways in which oftentimes the technologies that we use are carry their own ideology that does something quite different um, w when when we utilize them. And again, uh, we'll sing the praises again of domain of one's own and this ability to sort of how can we help how can we sort of give help students understand how they can control their own space online and and what they can and cannot control when it comes when it comes to using technology. And what you said there too makes me wonder, like how how healthily can these two things coexist? Sometimes, you know, I mean, there is an inherent tension there between the desire to create these um, open but safe spaces in which you know we've kind of got our students' backs and we are um, we are enabling them to become more educated about their activity in these spaces, but we're also expecting them to to act in these spaces and 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 develop in these spaces and at the same time we have this increasing business interest as institutions in monitoring, managing, um, and making money off of, um, off of some of what's going on here. Um, I, think, I think Martha, it's, it's in some respects a kind of an abiding tension that parents for you know decades have had to deal with. It's the, it's the tension between protection and preparation, yeah. right? So, yeah. you know, this, we are just engaging in those similar questions. There isn't an answer. Right. It is an ethical, it's an ethical, I don't, not even a conundrum, but it's an, it's an ethical process. It's a process, yeah. To what extent do we protect and prepare, and how do we do that? Right. And you know, the question that starts becoming interesting, anticipating where we're going to go at the end of this conversation, which is, and what role does technology play in this kind of dual and doubled kind of um, project of both right. protective and preparing, realism and you know, and kind of protectivism. And, and interestingly, technology can come down on either side of that, can be wielded for good or evil, <laughs> depending on depending on how you're wielding it. Jonathan, you had a follow up. Yeah, can you hear me now? Is that better? You sound fine. Okay. Yeah, it was. So um, I actually wanted to follow up what Audrey said, and um, and you you've been saying it. And it was post Nishant Shah's comment to me coming back. I I was sort of looking for this. My radar was out now for this for this subject area, and I um I I read with 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 horror of a university that was that's near me geographically um, and someone at that university described the students email as a vast untapped resource mm. um, and I, I was staggered and so we had this conversation with the students and I realized that there were three steps the students had to go through we had to go through together one was to become informed we had to have the discussion about their email which they had to use at the university was now becoming was considered a product mm. for, for sale um, they had to become um, empowered we had to work out how they would sort of step around this and what were the appropriate ways to take control of this situation and the third step then was then to become actively engaged to actually take an active um, uh, to, to well uh, with the students it was just to become engaged to take control of the situation I mean at this point, they're learning more than I know, and so um, you know, so we're back into learning together, sort of thing. But um, I've taken that forward in the project that we're working on at the minute now. And the one thing I keep coming back to when people say, "Can you sum it up in a sentence?" It is, uh, it is, it is for this. This is visual storytelling, and this is 
This is enabling people to participate in their own representation. And I think what we're thinking about here is I talk about the students thinking about themselves as brands. I used that word early on. I think, you know, if you're going to blog, if you're going to start sticking work out there, if you're going to use Facebook, you have to think of this as being your brand representation because it is not going to be your resume. It is not going to be your CV, that piece of paper you sent out. It is going to be this. It is going to be the search. And you have to take control of that now. Um, so I just wanted to sort of follow up. I don't have a big point at this uh, uh, now, but um, I just wanted to follow up, and I've done it. That, the, Jonathan, I was going to ask as a follow-up, what's your students' general reaction to that when you bring that to them? Um, well, the best, the best example, and we, we don't have to do it so often now, but we had a great moment with, in an early phonar class. It was a particularly fun class, and um, one of the students, every classroom, one of the classes, every classroom has one, has a particularly funny student. And the chances of him listening now are very slim. I wish he was. And, um, and he would be the one that would really keep the class alive because he would do, throw jokes in all the time. And it was a delight to have him in there. However, sometimes the, the jokes came a bit close to the line. And one of the things I, asked, I make the students do is I make them tweet their notes at key points in the classes. They have to tweet their notes. And afterwards, we aggregate the entire class's notes using Storify. And of course, because there is a meta class, the notes are global and they are they're, they're wide ranging, and so it's really interesting. And so at the end of this class, after he tweeted out a joke, I said, "Well, that was hilarious." Invert his uh, insert his name. It was really was funny. Let's see how many people saw that, shall we? And so we did. We used TweetReach to see that in fact his joke had gone out to I don't know. It was something. It was well over six thousand is what I had in my head. Six thousand people had 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 seen this. I said so. Do you think that's an appropriate representation for you at this learning moment? Bearing in mind that a student recently was picked up from the class and hired directly from the class by an employer, do you think that's, do you think that's a, it was funny, but you know, unless you're going to look for a career as a comedian, then this is probably, we probably have to rethink this. So that example is often enough for them to sort of see that, in fact, um, we, you know, they, need a, they, they have a responsibility to themselves to, to, to take more of a to responsibility, if that makes sense. Take control. All right. Thank you, Jonathan. We are actually at our 55-minute mark. Uh, we just have a few minutes left. And before we um, kind of end things, I wanted to give Jade um, a few minutes to talk specifically about the Trust Challenge. Yes, let me unmute myself. Um, so like I said at the beginning of the hour, um, you can find out all the information on the dmlcompetition.net website. Um, this is the fifth annual digital media and learning competition, and the topic is specifically um, on trusting connected learning environments. And this is, I believe, one of the first competitions where we are trying to not just think about K-12 education, but also what this means for higher education. Um, because a lot of the money that we see being spent is in the higher education realm and trying to figure out how we can translate what's been happening on the ground at universities for decades um, into these connected learning spaces. Um, but we don't have good definitions for what that means um, other than we know that it needs to be accessible, it needs to take in risk, and it needs to be trustworthy. Um, the goal for the competition is that people can take a lot of the things that have come up in this talk, um, the social complications of trust, and figure out um, tools that enable people to safely learn in these spaces. Because right now, I think all of us have said we've run into issues with that. Um, there's not an on-the-ground tool that you can just pick up and use without a risk to your students, without um, compromising their privacy in some way. So it's something that we hope that people who apply can figure out. Um, applications for the Trust Challenge will open on September 3rd. Um, right now you can see the CFP on the website. Again, that's dmlcompetition.net. And if you have any question, there is questions, there's a contact box you can use as well. 
Thank you, Jade. We just have a few minutes left. I want to give everybody a chance to get some final thoughts in. Um, and I don't have any particular guiding question for this. Maybe just to wrap up for you, what's been the most important point of today's conversation moving forward about um, thinking through trust in higher education? Anne, would you like to get us started? Sure, thanks. Um, what a delightful discussion this has been. I, I um, you know, I, I'm, I'm really thinking again about um, the responsibility that I have as an instructor to, you know, to understand the the risks as well as the opportunities of the technologies that I enjoy uh, that I enjoy and that I employ um, in my kind of learning my learning activities. Um, I just have to kind of do a sh do one kind of last polemic, which is I think we all need to. Um, continue to be uh, kind of vigilant about building trust in the process of education and learning, um, institutionalized or not, that, um, you know, there's, there is uh, something about kind of trusting the learning process and engaging in that in a kind of more, very forethoughtful way that I think we, we also need to pay attention to. Thank you. And Audrey, how about you? Um, I think it's always important to think about, you know, for me it's important to think about power and ideology when we talk about any, when we talk about um, systems, um, organizations like higher ed, but also when we talk about technology. And I was looking online last night and came across some of the free speech movement stuff in the 60s and was reminded how do not fold, spindle, or mutilate was a really powerful saying for students that wanted to resist what schools were doing to them as being part of the machine. And so, you know, but it was using, using resisting a computer language. So how can we make sure that what we're giving students is a way that's empowering politically and not simply turning them into a cog in this new sort of corporate wheel? Thank you, Audrey. And Howard, how about you? Final thoughts? Well, again, I, this is a little bit obvious, but uh, uh, get to know your students. Um, I'm uh, impressed that, that Mike Wesch, who, speak, who, who teaches two, three, four hundred students at, at a time, he has lunch with a different student every day. So you're not going to be able to have lunch with four hundred students, but the ones that you do have lunch with are going to trust you a little bit more. And as I said before, trust is transitive. They'll, they'll talk to their friends. So, um, you know, make them come to office hours, have a conversation, um, have lunch. Thank you, Howard. Jay, do you have any other final thoughts? Um, really quickly, um, I think that the role of learning together and thinking of these tools as iterative tools that we're learning together is extremely important. Um, I'm thinking specifically about just the stories and anecdotes that everybody has shared. Um, we just have to remember, just have to remember to remember to do remember to do this on our whims because we think this looks really cool and awesome. Thank you, Jade. And finally, Jonathan, final thoughts. Um, yeah, um, so my, I feel like I'm at an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting again. Uh, so, so I, I, you know, my, I'm going to put my hand up and just sort of say that, uh, um, that I have been untrustworthy in the past, unintentionally so, as an educator. And, um, you know, I see that now, and I'm going to work a lot harder in the future. I, I, I speak to the students, you know, we're photographers, and we look at the world, and we see everybody's an image maker. And I say, you know, everybody's making images. It's not about learning how to make them. It's 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 learning how to get yours seen. If everybody's talking at the same once, how do you get people to listen at the same time? How do you get people to listen? And and what we see is you tune out everyone you don't trust. 
you just do. You just edit the world and you edit out everyone you don't trust. So there is nothing more important than being trusted. And so, um, and so I'm going to work harder at that. I'd like some help. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for a great conversation. We'll have a full video recording of this webinar available immediately on www.connectedlearning.tv with other curated content on the way that you can share with your network. And this wraps up the final webinar of this month-long series, but that doesn't mean our conversations have to end here. We encourage everyone to keep the energy going by using the Twitter hashtag DMLTrust and by getting involved in the ongoing conversations within the Connected Learning Google Plus community. Mark your calendars, as Jade has already reminded us, for Wednesday, September 3rd, when the Digital Media and Learning Competition will open its application period for the Trust Challenge with individual awards up to $150,000. Check out www.dmlcompetition.net for more information. And last but not least, we encourage you to check out the recent Learner at the Center of a Networked World report by the Aspen Task Force. You can find a link on this webinar's archive page on www.connectedlearning.tv. Thank you.